This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> Tuesday, May 9th, 2017, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, Emmanuel Macron. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but, you know, if you kind of do the sound, people think you're authentic. Works with Hebrew, works with French. Anyway, Emmanuel Macron is president of France. Now the hard part. No caca, the hard part. Now the impossible part. You take a country where it's basically impossible to fire anyone. Somehow you turn their economy into a Gallic tiger. Good luck with that. On the other hand, With this win, this legitimately blessed win, it is not the death knell of populism or the knee-jerk reactionary nationalism sweeping the world. People are angry and confused and they want better and there is no real foreseeable way to give them much better. So they're going to cast about for easy answers. They're going to blame foreigners. They're going to attach themselves to simple to understand but foolish protectionism. There'll be some scapegoating. The difference between the world one day before the French election and one day after is not so great. We always do this. We always turn every election into a referendum, but few are. This was a victory by a sensibly charismatic candidate versus a demagogue with a lot of baggage. What does Le Pen's defeat say about Trumpism? Consider this. Le Pen ran as part of the National Front. That is a disgraced brand. It has two out of 577 seats in the National Assembly. The party dragged her down. Trump got the endorsement of the Republican Party. Still has it. Full-throatedly. That, the Republican Party, an ascendant brand, controls both houses of our legislature. Most states, the party brand propped up Trump, dragged down Le Pen. The paths are so different. Yet, here's a headline from The New Yorker. Yes, The New Yorker. The future of Europe hinges on a face-off in France. Well, the future did hinge on the outcome, as in if Le Pen won, there was a gigantic downside. If it was Macron, well, at least you would say, well, it wasn't Le Pen. The future, depending on it, this is like when you cross the street, your life depends on it, right? I mean, if that second you get pummeled by a car, say a Peugeot hurtling towards you, well, that's Le Pen. If it hits you, it's over. So, so your life depends on it. But if it misses you, that's not necessarily or even likely an inflection point where everything gets better from here. Also, it doesn't mean there aren't other Peugeots around the corners or Renaults or Le Cars. The best line on what this means for the supposed breaking of the fever cresting, the wave of populism subsiding was offered in the New York Times by Charlotte McDonald Gibson. Something hasn't peaked until it has started to decline. And with Le Pen and Gert Wilders setting records in their respective countries, 
We have repelled the latest barbarians attempting to scale the gates of liberal democracy, but their hordes are still coming in waves. On the show today, in the spiel, Fight Club meets Flight Club. Something dreadful in the air. But first, Dave Rothkoff of Foreign Policy Magazine on why this moment may be like no others. Or it may, but let's concentrate on the may not. David Rothkoff's new book, The Great Questions of Tomorrow, asks the following questions. What is war? What is peace? What is money? How do I get a free mug? Okay, that part's not true. No, but, no. Cheap <laughs> effort. Yes. Not going to work. But that is that is a frequent question <laughs> raised on the Editor's Roundtable podcast. And the reason that Dave Rothkoff is uh, in charge of the Editor's Roundtable is that he is the editor of Foreign Policy Magazine. And he's a long-standing thinker on affairs, international and mug-related. Hello. Thanks for coming on The Gist. I can't believe it's come to mugs. Mm -hmm. That's not one of the great questions of tomorrow, (laughs) but it's a pleasure to be here. So the framing of the great questions, you quote Einstein, you talk about your own history coming up with a set of uh, database solutions, and you find again and again, it's not that we don't have the right answers, it's that we're not asking the right questions. Okay, that has a little bit of a Zen cone quality to it. Put some flesh on the bones. What do you mean? Well, I don't don't know that those bones need much flesh. The reality is that if we're not asking the right questions, we end up in a problem. You know, I found this in the government a lot. You know, know, it's like, well, there was a shoe bomber yesterday. How do we prevent shoe bombers? Well, that's not actually the right question. And how do you make the country safer? Um, And I think, you know, we we need even more profound – uh, thought about these questions when big changes are looming. The questions get more basic. And we're at a moment in history where within the next 10 years, for the first time ever in the history of the world, every human being on the planet will effectively be connected in a human being made system. Uh, and that changes everything. It changes how we identify ourselves, who we associate with, what a community is, that changes what a government is, how, how what power is, and, and changes that are coming along with it will force us to reconsider what is war and what is peace and what is money and what is a job. And we can either wait for technology to change things and then respond to it after the fact, or we can think about these things now and perhaps come up with ideas about how we want things to turn out and try to shape things in that direction. All right. So let's just take what is peace. Let's say we do the right job asking that question. How would our uh, policies change to reflect that? Well, you know, know, we've historically thought that peace was the absence of war. And for example, during the Cold War, we had a deterrence strategy that, that worked because neither side really wanted to undertake the costs of a global thermonuclear war, which were impossibly high. Now we live in an era of cool war, cyber conflict, where the costs of the conflict are relatively low. It's even hard to figure out who is attacking whom. And that might lead us into a situation 
where nations and non-state actors were effectively constantly at war with each other. And so what appears to be peace, because there's no shooting war going on, is actually a different kind of conflict that could raise tensions. We've been talking about terrorism as the main national security focus of the United States since 2001, even, even a little bit before that. When, in fact, there are only a few tens of thousand terrorists, they're a threat, but they're not an existential threat. And meanwhile, giant changes are looming for the whole way society works. And, you know, it reminded me when I was growing up as a kid, there were these ads you'd see for New England life insurance. And it'd be like two people walking down the street. And one of them was looking up and saw a safe was about to land on the other one. And then underneath it would say, my insurance company? Why New England life, of course? Why do you ask? And, you know, it, it essentially, we've, we're in the position of the guy with the safe over our heads. Um, and I thought maybe we should be in the position of the other guy looking at these bigger changes and trying to pull the attention away from the headlines. Yeah. Do you think that now, uh, with where within 10 years, every human being connected to every other human being by a man-made system, of course, referring to the series of pneumatic tubes that Elon Musk is developing. No, exactly. uh, uh, of course. Um, I see you've got a very good grasp of all <laughs> yeah. of this. It's like, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm coming out with the next TED Talk. I'm, I'm the yeah, TED Buzzman. Good, good. But here's my question. Um, I have heard you talk about this, saying this is uh, perhaps even more than a generational. This is uh, the sort of change that happens once every h hundreds of years. Why is it more profound than the advent of broadcast media or television or any of these other technological changes that has certainly affected human existence? Well, those look, all technological changes affect human existence on some degree or another. And, and, you know, television was a big breakthrough and, 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 and radio was a big breakthrough and the airplane was a big breakthrough and so forth. But, you know, some of them affect life at the most fundamental level. They kind of reweave the fabric of civilization. And, you know, during the, the Renaissance, when you had the creation of a middle class, you had the, creation of nation states, you had us moving away from, uh, you know, principalities that were constantly at war with each other. We we had the, the Treaty of Westphalia. We tried to come up with a system that uh, kept the world from going at each other um, in the ways that they had and tried to impose a degree more of order. Uh, we had the Age of Discovery and, and we were sort of, you know, breaking out of, of some of the little boxes we'd been living in. That was really, really profound. And it really forced us to go back to fundamental philosophical questions. It, it didn't happen overnight. It took us 350 years to get from the printing press to the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. It it took us um, not just the 30 years war, but the glorious revolution in England to, you know, bring the ideas of John Locke to the fore about fundamental uh, human rights. Uh, these were later, you know, e e elaborated on by, you know, Thomas Jefferson and others and, and, and so on. And so th those much bigger changes produce a rethinking of society, a rethinking of the social contract. And I think that this moving to a new era where we're all connected, where geography matters much less, um, where some of the changes that you talked about are woven into it and amplifying it and, 
changing the way we communicate with each other, how we perceive news, what we perceive as true or not true. And then all of that is going to be leavened by other things like the onset of artificial intelligence, new forms of automation, changing the, na- the way we work, bit chain, changing the way of you know what, what money is and, and how economies work and so forth. You know, it seems to me like this is a change akin to the change that we saw in the Reformation and the Renaissance uh, and worthy of the same kind of philosophical thought that those produced. Uh, Here is the pushback for that. Of course, it's important and we have to ask the right questions. And yet, as I go back through just the history of America, industrial revolution, trains, cars, telephones, telegraph before telephones, television, every single one of these would occasion a huge reconsideration, and America has adapted, and I would argue pretty much adapted well. So I don't know that this is going to be such a uh, such a schism, the likes of which we've never seen. Okay, well, first of all, I'm not saying it's the likes of which we've never seen. And secondly, these kinds of changes are cumulative and ultimately have effect that, you know, sort of forces a fundamental reset. You know, it was the Industrial Revolution was uh, preceded by a whole set of developments that had to do with uh, uh, new manufacturing techniques, the mm-hmm. advent of the steam engine, the changing nature of the structure of society, yeah. and so forth, and went on for a long, long time. And so, Yes, any sort of bright line in history is a little artificial. But there come points where so many changes converge. And, you know, you're talking about revolutions in communications technology and transportation technology. But if you take those and then you combine them with this really, really big thing that every person's going to have a supercomputer in their pocket mm-hmm. soon, soon, and anybody anywhere will be able to connect to anybody anywhere else for the first time in history, that undermines the whole idea of what is a community? What is a government? Who are we? Who do we relate to best? The people near us or people far away? How do we get a job? How do we shape views? What is culture? We're going to have one cultural ecosystem for the first time in history. So I would argue there are changes all the time. Some are bigger than others. And sometimes really big changes converge to produce a kind of giant societal level disruption that warrants this kind of thought. Do you think our democracy, I mean, it rests on the wisdom of the people. Are we wise enough? Uh, Are the choosers uh, do, do we have the skill? Uh, are we up to the job? Well, <laughs> certainly recent evidence suggests there's some work to be done in this area. But I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, <laughs> the old statement that democracy, you know, is, is, you know, the worst system except for all the others, you know, is probably true. I think democracy is going to change as a result of these technological changes. People have more information available to them. Uh, certainly, but we also see that social media is creating kind of groupthink and bubble approaches because you have your friends filtering the news that's that's getting to you. Uh, and I think we have to, you know, sort of rethink how we educate ourselves and how we educate our children in these kind of societies, where instead of just teaching them how to read, we teach them critical reasoning. We teach them what to believe and how to determine whether something is true or not, and how to drink from the fire hose of of, of information that's provided by the internet. Um, but I, you know, and and I also think there's some real risks for democracy in this uh, uh, approach. By the way, because you know, it, it won't be long before somebody says, you know, I can 
enable you to vote from your smartphone based on your fingerprint or biometrics. And uh, and people go, okay, great. Then I don't have to go wait in line to vote. I'll vote from my smartphone. And then somebody will say, well, you know, since you can vote from your smartphone, you don't have to vote just on election day. We could have a vote anytime anything important came up. And all of a sudden, you're going to have a real debate. And I am absolutely sure this is going to happen between whether we should have representative democracy, as we do now, or whether we should go to a more sort of real-time, internet-based system of referenda on big <laughs> issues. Uh, which, you know, is a little worrisome, right? Because that tends to be, those kind of uh, activities tend to be more emotion-driven, less thoughtful than others. But, you know, we, you know, democracy is going to change in the course of this period, and I think we need to think about how. Right. I want Gus from Dubuque deciding whether the continuing resolution to fund the omnibus goes through. Oy. Well, yeah, or, or you know, uh, somebody sinks a ship, yeah. In in some harbor someplace. And the next day the president says, you know, I want the people of the United States to certify that we should go blow up those bastards. And everybody's like, yeah, let's blow up the bastards. And, you know, three weeks later, we it turns out it wasn't the bastards we thought it was who sunk the ship. You know, they're, they're, that's the, the, you know, the representative democracy, slow, um, somewhat methodical systems have some benefits. And I think we need to understand those. Yeah, I think we've oversold the merits of democracy and undersold the merits of liberalism in the whole construction of liberal democracy. Well, you know, that's an interesting way to put it. I think, you know, basically the better educated the voter, the more tools they have, the more the system encourages them to be thoughtful and reflective, the better. And uh, we certainly have the ability to create the best educated best informed electorate ever in history. <laughs> and yet that's not what has happened. Yeah. You know, at the at the moment we could do that, we we have, you know, sort of cable news cage matches and Twitter driving the political debate. Uh, but that's a choice we're making as a society. And 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 we need to recognize that that's a choice we're making. We need to recognize that we can undermine ourselves and make bad choices by stumbling into kind of 21st century democracy without thinking about the defects and the things that weaken us. And other societies may not make the same mistakes. And, and you know, they may end up making smarter decisions, and that may empower them while we weaken ourselves. Dave Rothkoff is the editor of Foreign Policy. You should listen to the podcast, The ER, which is the editor's roundtable, and his new book is The Great Questions of Tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you. Keep listening to the gist, folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They All will. Right. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye. And now the spiel. Martin Luther King once said that a riot is the language of the unheard. Either that or of stranded Spirit Airline passengers in the Fort Lauderdale International Airport. You know your airline is in trouble when the words you're murmuring to yourself when you walk off the plane is the same as the words when you walk out of the Holocaust Museum. Never again. Spirit is the worst. Spirit. 
synonym, specter, ghoul, ghost, as in you don't have a ghost of a chance to get through a flight without some degree of bodily harm, including tasting your own knees given seat configuration. That said, angry airline passengers, these are the new viral video du jour. Others in this illustrious trend, cats on treadmills, then the ice bucket challenge, then the Harlem shake, then left shark, then police abuse videos, and now airline outrage. You think I'm being dismissive putting viral police videos in there, but I'm not. It is the exact pattern. Sometimes the content that everyone apes is totally frivolous. Sometimes it couldn't be more important. That was the case of police videos. But there's always a predictable pile-on effect. And things we wouldn't think of as news or notable become news because it's part of this trend. Last Friday, another airline video went viral. But the actual confrontation happened two weeks prior. So this way, news reports can say... You know, it's just the latest case of police violence or it's just the latest case of a Fox employee filing harassment charges or it's just the latest case of an airline overbooking and booting passengers from their flights. So let's get into the details of this, this specific incident, which uh, turns out was the greatest injustice perpetrated on a mode of transit since the Montgomery bus boycott or possibly the sinking of the Lusitania. Okay, let's break it down for you. So the family bought three adult tickets for that specific flight. One for the mom, the dad, and their 18-year-old son, and they had two toddlers. The toddlers were going to ride on the laps of the adults. Now, the 18-year-old son took an earlier flight, and we're told that the family paid for that ticket. Hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm busy constructing my genealogy tree of the Shear family in order to best appreciate the depth of human suffering. I think my flowchart is now updated. Let us keep following along. Now, mom and dad wanted to use the third seat on the flight that they were on to strap in the uh, toddler into the car seat and use that third seat. Dad, Brian Shear tells us that when they refused to give up that seat, the airline told him and the entire family that they just had to go. We never thought it was going to get to the point where they're, they're, they're actually getting us all off the flight. And as we're leaving the plane, there's four or five passengers there waiting for our seat. The bottom line is they oversold the flight. Well, that is the bottom line, isn't it? To the airlines, the bottom line literally is the bottom line. And another bottom line might be the FAA has rules about ticketed parties actually being in the seats they're assigned. This family did not follow the rules. They have asked young Master Shear, the two-year-old, to ride in the place of older Master Shear, the 18-year-old. Now, it might seem logical that a family that has purchased three seats wants to use all three of those seats for members of the family. Counterpoint, there are rules that do not allow this. So who's right? Well, when it happened, the airline was right. But a few weeks later, after the rise of viral videos of angry airline customers, the shears get to be right. All right, and Delta Airlines issued this statement to CBS2. We are sorry for what the family experienced. Our team has reached out, and we will be talking with them to better understand what happened and come to a resolution. Delta Airlines adding, please don't call us in front of Congress, please. Remember our old slogan? Delta, we get you there. We weren't promising anything extra. We just get you there. Need I remind you that no one has died in a Delta crash since 2006? Oh, yeah, well, no one's died in American Airlines flight since 2003. That's true, but no one's died in a Southwest Virgin or JetBlue crash ever. Actually, technically, that's not true. A passenger in a car died when a Southwest jet went off the runway in 2005. All right, all right, all right, true, yeah, but, um, you know, what about legroom? You are actually eliminating two inches of legroom. Look, big problem with the airlines is we would crash and die. That hasn't happened in like a decade. Don't we get any credit for that? No. I guess not. All right, all right. We're, we're going we're gonna to work on a new slogan here at Delta. 
We've got it. We're workshopping it. Tell me what you think. Flying sucks. What can I tell you? Delta. Huh? Huh? That is at least as good as we get you there. That is all I'm saying. Oh, man, can't we just get the Harlem Shake to come back, please? That was a good, that was a good viral video trend. We're Delta. We love to fly and it shows. Remember that one with the smiling stewardess? Back when you could call them stewardesses and we didn't get hauled in front of Congress every time the drink cart busted a wheel. Oh, I know, I know. Here's a new uh, slogan. Delta. We might cramp you, but for about a decade, we haven't killed you. All right, I got another one. Delta. Maybe the Sheer family of Huntington, California is a bunch of whiny bitches. Okay, it seems a little narrow for the moment, but it is timely, right? Delta. Our only riots are when a hilarious Kevin James movie is the in-flight entertainment. Huh? Huh? All right, finally, here's my last gambit. Delta. You know what? Take a freaking train. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube, GIST producer, is allowed one carry-on, one personal item, one impersonal item, and one item that's kind of awkwardly in between, so you don't know whether to hug it or shake it. Okay, fist bump. Let's fist bump. Mary Wilson, GIST producer, is offering a choice of crackers, blue potato chips, or cyanide capsules to bite down on. Steve Lichtai, executive producer, asks that you listen to all podcasts produced by Slate with these weird two-pronged headphones that won't work anywhere else but come in plastic wrapping, even though the entire environment here is basically an incubator chamber for one emphysemic guy's cough. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network, and he asks that you please put all approved electronic devices on airplane mode or else we might crash. You never know. And the fact that this is still implied as a possibility should tell you that the airline industry is either dangerously ignorant, deceitful, or reckless. The gist, riots, overbookings, the occasional drag off, that we will tolerate. But when some maniac has filled in the crossword in Hemispheres magazine, we all have our breaking points. Um, Peru, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.